My name is Eduardo Zanata. I'm Vice President of Operations at the Vita and an MBA graduate of the Harvard Business School. The Latter-day Saint MBA Society was founded by a group of MBA students and alumni who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with the hope of bringing together a community committed to navigating the business world with our faith at the center of our lives. In this podcast, you will hear interviews with Latter-day Saint thought leaders that we hope will inspire you, both in your professional and spiritual life. For more information about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society, visit latterdaysaintmba.com. And now I will pass it over to Kurt Frankham, who will host this week's interview. Welcome back to another episode of the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Uh, today, we have the opportunity to connect with Manuel Amorim. How are you, Manuel? I am fine. Thank you very much. Now, tell us uh, a little bit about your, your backgrounds or where you've you established yourself in your professional life and, uh, and where did you earn your MBA? Okay. So, I, I am originally from Brazil. I grew up there I, in Rio. I went to engineering school there, uh, got married and had my three kids in Rio. And five years after my graduation, I found out that I had not, uh, I was not born to be an engineer <laughs> and decided to apply for business school. I got accepted at uh, the Harvard Business School, graduated in 1990 started my career with Procter & Gamble in the marketing area. I, I had a very fast career with P&G. In eight years, I was one of the 28 executives, global executives to have a P&L responsibility. Mm -hmm. uh, there were seven business units, global business units in four regions. So 28 uh, executives with global P&L responsibility. I was one of them for the baby care category in, in Latin America. Wow. Then uh, after 10 years with P&G, I left. And over the next uh, 15 years, I held several uh, president, CEO uh, positions, most of them in publicly traded companies, listed companies in Latin America and Europe, and also served in several boards in six different countries. All of publicly traded companies for the most part so I, you know, after leaving PNG, I was president for America Online in Brazil. Then I was CEO for a large telecommunications business also in Brazil called Telefonica, controlled by the uh, Spanish company with the same name in Spain. Uh, left and, and uh, was the CEO of a large company. Uh, retail business, uh, very similar to what Best Buy is here hmm. in the US. And then finally, I, I retired as an executive after four years ahead of a, 
education company that I started up with uh, two very large investors and I was the CEO. We took the company public in two years, became the seventh largest education company in the world in a very short period of time. Then I retired as an executive. I had already made some investments in uh, different businesses. One of them, a, a real estate startup in Provo and a consulting business in Brazil. Uh, I moved to the US as soon as I retired as an executive, continued to hold my, my shareholder positions in the two companies. By that time, the real estate company in Provo was very large already. Today, we are one of the 50 largest real estate companies in the US. We invest in multifamily units for rental income generation for investors. We have over $4 billion in assets under management. And I continue to, uh, to have uh, the consulting practice focused on telecommunications in Brazil. Wow. And uh, more recently, I started up an investment company in, uh, here in, in Park City, where I live, uh, part-time. The other uh, half of my time I spent here in Orlando, where I'm speaking from, in Florida, uh, working with my son to make diversified investments. And finally, as a board member, as I said, I was a board member in several boards of publicly traded companies. All of the uh, Telefonica-controlled companies in Latin America, in Argentina, Chile, Peru, Colombia, Brazil, I was a MasterCard uh, international board member when MasterCard went public in 2006 and several other boards. And currently I, I serve in the Merritt School of Business in its uh, National Advisory Council. I am hmm. married to my wife, Marcia. I... Uh, I have three kids, two sons and a daughter, and 10 grandkids. And in the church, I served my mission in Brazil, in Sao Paulo. Uh, when I was young, I am a convert. I was baptized when I was 14 years old. I held several positions in many places. My wife and I lived in 32 different homes, 33 now. Wow. In 39 years of married life and uh, more recently my last calling was serving as a mission president in Portugal, the Portugal Porto Mission uh, when I was released in 2018. So that's a brief summary. No, that's great. Really informative. So it was Harvard an easy choice for you? I mean, was it a dream school? I mean, what what was the experience of applying? Well, in, in uh, there? The, the story is the following. I was very unhappy with what I was doing. And as a consequence, I, I was working in an oil refinery as a process engineer. 
Oh, wow. And uh, I was very unhappy. I did not like what I was doing as a consequence. And that's usually what happens when you get involved with something you don't like. I was not doing very well. Through a, a first entrepreneurial experience that I had when I was attending college, I, I had a, a, a college prep uh, course uh, with three other partners. I had found what my passion was. Uh, I, I really liked the marketing and sales part of the business. That was my responsibility amongst the four partners. So I started to look for uh, a position, a job where I could do that. But after five years working as a process engineer in an oil refinery, that was very difficult to find. <laughs> I, can, I can imagine. And uh, one day I was reading a leading business magazine in Brazil. And I saw an article about the Harvard Business School. And one of the things that the article said, you know, you know, on top of describing the excellence of the school, etc., it said that 80% of the students were there to change career paths. When I saw that article, I read that article, I decided that that where I was going hmm. and I was the most unlike candidate to apply. <laughs> I do not speak English very well. I still don't, but it was much worse than, <laughs> than it is now. Uh, I didn't have the money. My parents were not rich, uh, were middle, middle class. Uh, I was married. I had three kids. I had a stable job. Even though I did not like it, it was a lifetime job if I wanted to. So I had a lot of job security. But I, I decided that I was not continuing to live my life spending eight to ten hours a day, every day, doing something that I did not like. I talked to my wife. She was very supportive. We were very young. I was 30 years old. Um, and then I decided to apply to four schools. I applied to Harvard and three other schools. And at the end, I got accepted, which is another story. <laughs> but uh, I, I obviously went and, and graduated, and that was a major, major uh, door opener and eye opener for, for myself and for my future uh, professional life. And uh, I was very glad that I made that experience, uh, that I had that experience, made that decision. And obviously, since I was there to change my career path into marketing sales, Procter & Gamble was at that time, 1990, the uh, standard of excellence for people who wanted to pursue a, a marketing career. That's how I started, started to do what I liked, and I... I did it well, and to this date, as far as I know, I think I was the professional within the global P&G world to achieve the general management level, which is a very high level within the P&G structure, in record timing, in its 200 uh, years of history as a company. I, I made it in seven years when the average at that time was 15 years. Hmm. Uh, today is even longer. It's about 20. But I, in seven years, I was, as I said, one of the 28 guys 
holding a PL responsibility. And I attribute much of that to the fact that I was doing what I just loved doing it. And, you know, I, I joined for the right reason, uh, the right company, and everything else was, uh, became a consequence. My job satisfaction, my success, money, etc., came uh, as a consequence of a right choice. Yeah. So while you're at uh, Harvard, you know, as you mentioned, you were uh, around 30, you had, you had a family, maybe you weren't the, uh, the typical uh, student uh, in the, the business school there. Um, was, it, uh, was it what you expected? Was it harder than you thought? How, how would you describe getting through those years at Harvard? It was very hard. It was very difficult, but it was just wonderful. I, I had a blast during those two years. Uh, it was very stressful at some points, but once I got through the first uh, semester and I, you know, through my grades, through my performance, I knew what I was capable of because you're surrounded by very, very bright people. And uh, the way that grades work uh, at Harvard, it's just like in the competitive business world. You know, you have to be better than the others to have a good grade. Hmm. Like every single class, 10% uh, of the students are going to fail, period. Wow. The 10% that were in the bottom 10% of the grades in every class. And you cannot be in that position uh, three times during the year. If you are, you're expelled. Uh, so during the first semester, I, you know, looking at all those people around me, uh, sometimes I was tempted to think that I, there was no way that I could be brighter than any of them. And that meant mm -hmm. that I was in the bottom 10%. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I failed just one class and I, I was in the top 10% in two classes, so that put me in a, in a good spot. And then once I, I acquired that self-confidence in my abilities as a student, I enjoyed life a lot more uh, during the other one and a half years. And it was yeah. wonderful. It was just, I, I finished my second year with uh, 19 job offers. I can oh, wow. never imagine that that could happen. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. And it's cool. It's uh, cool to hear that you, uh, you found obviously a career and a professional path that, uh, you enjoyed rather than the, the oil rig, yeah. right? That's awesome. Um, so I had just sent me a few principles as far as reflecting back on your professional career and, and with your studies and as well of certain principles that stand out that may, uh, other MBA students or alumni might found uh, find helpful, um, and maybe the first place to start is uh, where to start in the the gospel as well, and that that's faith. Uh, right. How has faith played a role in in your well, big life? one, and that's the principle that I was very blessed to learn when I was a missionary. I served under a wonderful mission president, uh, Brother Wilfred Carden from Arizona. In fact, he, he has uh, funded a, a scholarship program in the marriage school. Hmm. Today, more than 200 international students have attended 
the Marriott School and, and gotten their MBAs through this program that he started. And I was actually the first one in the program. But I, I was his assistant for for a long time, for almost a year and a half. And there were two types of assistants in my, in my mission. Uh, assistance to the president, which is a position that he, a leadership position that in most missions, uh, only two missionaries at a time hold. But he had more. He had about four. One in the office and three traveling through the mission to train other missionaries. So I was for about nine months uh, an assistant in the office and my last nine months in the mission I was a traveling assistant. When I finished my, my time in the office, he called me and uh, and I had I had worked really hard. I was a good missionary. I was very obedient. I I was very dedicated. I it took me a while to decide to be a missionary when I when I went to serve, I, w- I was almost 21 years old, which is older than most uh, young men, uh, you know, start their service in the mission field. But when I, when I did decide and I made a lot of sacrifices to go, I made the decision that I was going to be the best I could. And that's what I felt that I was doing up until that point when I finished my time in the office. So my president called me and said, uh, Elder Amorim, you are doing very well. You are a very obedient, hardworking missionary. Now you're going to be traveling to train and teach other missionaries. But there's one thing that you have not learned, and I want you to learn before your mission ends. Uh, you need to learn to have faith. And I was devastated initially by that comment. And I asked, what, what do you mean, President? And I told him everything that I was doing. He said, yeah, that's everything that you've been doing. That's why I'm sending you to train other missionaries. But let me tell you what I mean. You have to have the faith uh, that promotes and drives miracles. And you haven't... Uh, learned that yet. Let me let me illustrate what I think. Any place that you're sent to from now on, in any place there will be a family ready to accept the gospel. If you have the faith that I'm talking about, you are going to find those families every week from now until the end of your mission. And you're going to be baptizing people every week from now on. Uh, and then I, then I think I understood, I thought I understood what he was talking about. And I spent the whole night praying to have that faith. Uh, it was one of the few times in my life where I spent like eight hours praying. But then I, I you know, I was sent the next morning to my first area. Um, we got there. And uh, we found the two missionaries who were working there. We've learned about what they are doing. And then they asked us, uh, me and my companion, what uh, our plans were. And I said, this was a, a, a Monday, the end of the PD. And, and I said, we're going to have a baptism this, for this Saturday. <laughs> wow. and, they, and they said, oh, don't have anybody prepared. 
I said, well, let's exercise our faith and let's believe that we'll find someone prepared and, and we'll, we'll, we'll find someone. And the first thing we're going to do is to prepare the program and invite the members. That will help us be committed to, to have that baptism on Saturday. And they thought we were crazy, but we were the assistants, so they just followed us. We invited everybody and, and had the program. We just didn't have the converts yet. To make a long story short, uh, on Saturday, we baptized a family of six people. It was actually on Thursday because uh, we met the family and they fulfilled two of the, of the three prerequisites to be baptized. They had been to church once and they had met the bishop, but they hadn't been taught the seven lessons yet. So we met them on Thursday. We found out that there there was a lot of opposition coming their way. So we taught them the seven lessons and we, on that night, and we advanced the program to Thursday at 11 p.m. 11 p.m. we, we baptized the, the family and they stayed very active in the gospel, went to the temple to be sealed one year later. And from that point that I learned that when you have the faith to see things happening in your life and you act and work accordingly, nothing can be uh, can preempt you from from seeing. And I love that uh, scripture in, in Ether twelve nineteen. Nothing can prevent you from seeing the things that you have previously seen with your eyes of faith. And then I baptize every single week from that week until the end of my mission. My last, mm. my very last hour in the mission I spent in a baptismal meeting. And that's more or less what happened to me when I decided to go to Harvard. I, as I said, I was the most unlike candidate. Uh, but I, I saw myself from the moment that I made that decision with my wife that I was going to be our Harvard Business School graduate. And uh, I spent the next two years preparing. I never had a lunch at work anymore. I was preparing to take the GMAT um, at lunch and during the evenings. Uh, and I saw myself every single day on that graduation day at Harvard. And I ended up finding a scholarship I got accepted and I graduated. So uh, again, I saw that same principle happen in my life. So I'm, I am a big, big believer in the power of faith. When you do have a little and you live your life believing that you can achieve worthy goals, just goals, uh, you're a son of God, a daughter of God. There's nothing that can preempt you from achieving your full potential. Yeah. So in, in your day-to-day -day life, are there certain routines or practices that, uh, that help you stay on track with, with your faith and make sure that you're, you're, you're functioning from a place of faith? I uh, try, um, I would be lying if I say that I, that I read the scriptures every day, but I try. I attend church. I, I try to stay tuned to my Heavenly Father, and uh, I try to live a, a Christ-like life. That's what we do every Sunday. We, 
we ask uh, Heavenly Father and we tell Heavenly Father that we are willing to take upon us the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. That means uh, living a Christian life. It's simple. It's difficult, but it's simple. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the next principle you put is uh, the, the extra mile. Right. Uh, how, how do you interpret the I extra will, mile? I will link two principles that I okay. really believe in. It's hard work and extra mile. The most successful professionals that I have seen, and I've seen a lot, uh, young or, or older, are those who really work hard. They don't take anything for granted. Today, the youngest, uh, the younger generations, they t- tend to, to think that they're entitled to something, that they deserve something. Uh, and that's not true. That's uh, a lie that causes a lot of failure in a lot of people's lives when you think you're entitled, when you think that uh, you don't have to work hard for those things. And I've learned early in my life through my dad. You know, my great-great-grandfather was a trash collector. Lowest, dirtiest job you can have. And Mm -hmm. he didn't go to school, but he really believed in the principle, two principles of working hard and uh, getting an education. And he worked really hard to give my grandfather an education became an army officer and then from that point on everybody in the family got a a higher degree and most of us a postgraduate degree just in three generations three Uh, from a guy who came as an immigrant from portugal to brazil and without knowing how to read how to write um you know ended up owning a taxi and saving money to send his kid to college, his only kid to college, my uh, grandfather. So I've learned from my family that working hard is something absolutely important. My three kids never, ever got a dollar, a dime, without knowing why they were getting that dollar. Stipends were not... It's not part of our vocabulary in our family. They had to do something, even when they were two years old, to help mom clean the kitchen or to throw things in the trash or to help washing the dishes. And then every Monday we would evaluate their performance and give them what (laughs) they had earned during that week. So uh, the the most... uh, the most successful professionals are the ones who are willing to work really hard without thinking that they need to get something in return. They're earning their, their salary, their bonuses, and they know that that is a consequence of two things. One, working hard, but not only working hard, but every day striving to do better and to do more than what is expected of them. One of the things that I've learned from my father was that we always need to leave the places we pass by better than we found. This became a guiding principle in my life. And with 
exceptional rewards of all kinds because we had that uh, as a guiding principle in our in our lives. I'll give you a very quick example. Okay. I once uh, uh, rented uh, as soon as I got back from the states to Brazil, working for for PNG, I rented a house for three years before we got transferred uh, to another country. And uh, we paid our rents uh, on time. But when we left, we asked ourselves, what is it that we can leave behind in better condition than what we found? And we found one or two things that could use, uh, you know, some repairs, some additions, etc. And we uh, returned the house back to the owner, to the uh, landlord, better than what we had found. 20 years later, 24 years later, I was looking, I was building a house. I had sold my, my other house. Uh, I agreed with the buyer and the seller. Uh, I agreed with the buyer because I was building a new home. Uh, sometime before I left, uh, to allow for time to complete the house, but the construction got delayed. I had to deliver my previous house. So we find, found ourselves with four or five months still left to finish the new house, but without having a place to live. So we were looking for houses and I, for some reason, I decided to pass in front of that house that 24 years before I had rented with my wife for the three kids. By that time we had only one kid who had not gone to college yet. And then I saw a for rent sign in front of the house. <laughs> and I, I was with a realtor and I said, look, I've rented this house. I hope the lady still remembers us. Why don't you call her now and see if, uh, if she would hand, rent the, the house back to us. He came to us after he left the car, spoke on the phone, came to us and said, I never saw anything like this in my professional life. The lady said that uh, she remembers you. You have been the best tenants she's ever had, that you have delivered the house to her better than she delivered to you in the first place. So she told us to stop by and get the key. She doesn't need a contract from you. The rent is this. If you accept, just go and get the key. And we lived for five months in that house without a contract. Oh, wow. Just by applying the principle. My mission president told me once that when you put first things first, uh, second things come free. But when you put second things, the secondary things should not be a priority first, you usually lose both. Hmm. And by, by being a good tenant, by, you know, putting this principle, an important principle first, which is, Whenever you pass by a place, leave it better than you found. Be a contributor. Be an improver. The rest is a consequence. Uh, people will want to do business with you, will promote you, will give you salary increases, big bonuses. We want to do business with you. And, and, and so uh, th these were two guiding principles for me. Uh, working hard walking the extra mile, leaving things better than you found them in every, yeah, in every single aspect of my, 
That's, that's powerful. That's powerful. And I bet, I mean, those who have uh, been landlords or had real estate properties, they probably don't uh, experience that too often. You know, yeah. usually the move out is uh, more of a headache than anything, yeah. you know. Um, the, the next principle you, you noted is, is one that, uh, man, I think everybody uh, struggles with, and that's uh, balance. Uh, how do you how do you strike a balance in your, in your life and your professional well, life? Well, uh, I think that balance should be first a criteria for you to choose uh, your uh, profession, your career, your job. I, uh, when I got married, the person who spoke in our uh, ring ceremony was a gentleman who uh, eventually became the first general authority uh, from Brazil. Mm-hmm. And one thing he, he said that I'll never forget, he said, look, over the course of your life, uh, you're going to have uh, different priorities. Sometimes it's going to be uh, your school. Sometimes it's going to be overseeing your kids. Sometimes it's going to be something else. But never, ever leave your family as a secondary priority. Mm. It needs to be first. So, uh, you know, when I had my my, uh, summer internship between first and second year, uh, there was one firm, and out of respect for them, because they have a tremendous respect for them, I will not mention the name, but most people, if they've done their MBAs, they will know which company I'm talking about. Uh, a lot of students wanted to do the internship with them, because if we were successful and worked for them between first and second year, that was a stamp of excellence that all of the other recruiters would identify because it's a firm that has extremely high uh, uh, recruiting standards. So, and I was lucky and fortunate to to get my summer internship with them. Uh, But during those three months, what I found was that the lifestyle was some that I was not going to be able to have a balanced life. Everybody worked until 11 p.m. midnight every every day, most weekends, and uh, there was a 50% divorce rate amongst the professional <laughs> staff. Wow! And I uh, professional staff, and I said, "No, I'm, I'm not. and I love the work, and I love the firm. It was just." Uh, Outstanding, yeah, but I said, no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to mortgage my my life, not even a year. Um, I knew that they made a lot of money, but I thought about that principle: first things first, second things come for free. And I I, I ended up working for a company that did allow me to have a balanced life. There was even a, a very interesting story during the course of my life. I was I found an outstanding while working for PG as a brand manager, a guy that I really wanted to recruit out of college. He was just outstanding. And this firm that I had worked for in my summer internship, the consulting firm, had the eye on this guy. And uh and it was a battle. It was, you know, I would have lunch with a the guy. They would invite him for dinner. The next morning I would have breakfast and they would <laughs> have another event. 
And, and, and this guy was really undecided until I, one day I said, look, come to my office uh, tonight. You have, uh, you have to make a decision. We will no longer wait for you. So you have to make a decision by tomorrow. So come to my office tonight. Let's have our first interview. Stop by at 10 p.m. And it was 10 p.m. He said, yeah, 10 p.m. You come to my office. So he got there. Uh, the pr- place was dark. Just my office where the lights were on. And I said, and I asked him, uh, I have just one question for you. Who are you interviewing with at this firm? And he gave me three names. I picked up the phone, called and said, and I said, when the person answered, I want to talk to so, so, or so. Any one of the three that are there now uh, will do. And the answer was, well, the three of them are here. I said, okay, <laughs> let me talk to the first one, the first name. And tell them that it's Daniel Campos, which was this guy I wanted to recruit. And I, I handed him the, the, the phone. He said, what do you want me to do? I said, well, ask some questions. You know, figure it out. Talk to the guy. And he did ask one or two questions, and he was really uncomfortable. And when the call uh, finished, I said, okay, the interview is over. I want an answer tomorrow. And uh, he was smart, and the message was clear. You know, we had a life on top of our work life. Everybody was home. P&G is an excellent company. It's number one or two in every single category they compete. But the other guys were working until, you know, every day until very late and didn't have anything else to do other than work for the most part. So he came back uh, the next morning, accepted the job offer. <laughs> Today he is a, a C-suite guy, uh, president for Axel Nobel in Latin America, and has three global responsibilities for that firm. Uh, had an outstanding career, but uh, you know, balancing my yeah. opinion is important. I I went to every single. Uh, parents uh, meeting uh, for my three kids when they were going to school several games I was there I very rarely worked uh, during my weekends uh, they were those were times for the family uh, and despite uh, all of that I could have a successful career a lot of people can. They just need to make the decision that they will. Yeah. And was there anything you did as a, as a manager of, of individuals when you maybe saw that they their balance, their life was in out of balance? Uh, maybe they were staying late when, when nobody else was or any? Well, you, you know, I believe in, in communication uh, without words. When you, when you set the standards, when you uh, set the example, you know, sometimes making one or two comments uh, about what you're doing, about what your expectations are. People follow. People follow the lead. You don't need to be preaching yeah. about uh, work balance. You just, you know, you know, life balance. You just have a, a balanced life. And people yeah. will see that. They will respect that. They will be curious about that. And they will eventually want to have that as well. 
I did have some, you know, uh, conversations, interviews, and people came to me for advice uh, very privately once they, you know, the trust was there for those types of conversations. But in general, it was just setting the example. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned you had 32 different homes uh, over that, was it 35 years of your professional life? And, uh, okay. Of married life. Of married life. Okay. And so I'm curious, I mean, obviously many uh, business lives cause for people to move often. Any right. any advice on how to do that effectively? I mean, I'm sure that was quite taxing on your wife to, to move so yes. much, but any uh, advice good there? Good question, good question. And especially in today's global economy, when you may end up uh, uh, pursuing a career that can't take you places like PNG took me. Uh, I've lived in four different countries, or five, if I include Portugal during my mission, five different countries. But I think the most important advice is, uh, and this is something that I saw on the door of a principal, of a principal of an elementary school in Cincinnati, Ohio, where one of my kids uh, attended the school. Uh, there was a saying that I never forgot. Uh, it, it says more or less something like this. The attitude that you are going to find in this office is to, to be very similar to the attitude you bring to this office. And, uh, and I... And, and, and I'm writing a book right now on, on organizational culture with a professor from the University of Utah. And I, hmm. I've, I've interviewed 50 CEOs for the book. And I have seen the same principle again and again when applied driving success. Uh, every time that we went, that we got a transfer, the attitude that we brought to the new place was we are going to have a party. We are going to have a blast. We are going to learn the culture. We're going to learn the language. We will make friends. For instance, when I went to Harvard, uh, we attended church meetings in a building that had a regular American word, a Spanish word, and a Brazilian branch. My wife did not speak one word of English at the time. But guess where we attended? We attended the American word. You know, my, my, my wife had this little piece of paper with a generic prayer in English that she could read if she was ever called to say a prayer before <laughs> or after a meeting. But yeah. we went there. We made lifetime friends from the word. Uh, we always, always... Uh, uh, brought a good attitude. And I found that this makes all the difference in the world. I interviewed this guy who, who had his career within this company and he was sent to, to China. Found out that the, it was a very difficult market to crack. He was not finding you know, a way to make his company succeed there for the first six months until he was invited to a meeting uh, of the expatriate executives in China. And he said that he came out of that meeting 
with a very clear idea of what to do. And he said, look, when I was there, you know, I found two types of people there. One, the people who hated China, who spoke badly about the Chinese, who were dying to have their time and to go back. And the other group was very successful. They loved China. They, they were all Westerners, but they, they understood the culture. They was loving the experience. And I said to myself, I'm going to be part of this group. So he started to learn Chinese. He started to, cheat, to, to teach and to, and to bring themes to his meetings that were Chinese types of, of things. He even dressed as a samurai uh, in, in some of his uh, uh, sales meetings. And when he came back five years later, the company in, in, in China was five times the size of the company in the United States. Five times. Wow. In five years. And, and, and so, you know, my kids speak four languages each because every time we move to a new place, we would <laughs> give them the opportunity to learn a new language. We try to, to make friends, etc. And, and that's the same thing that I found when I was working in Venezuela, which was at that time the, the headquarters for the Latin American division. Uh, we had 150 expatriates. The ones that did better... About half of them were American, and then we had another half from all parts of the world, from Egypt to the United Kingdom. The ones who were doing great were the ones who were really with the right attitude. They visited places, the, the wonderful beaches in, in Venezuela. They loved the, to try the typical restaurants, etc., they not only became more interesting people, more culturally diverse people, uh, but also better executives, much better executives than the ones who were hating to live there. It, it comes yeah. from you. The attitude is everything. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's sage advice. I love that. Really helpful. Um, anything else as far as, you know, the, as far as balance or family first that uh, we haven't mentioned that. Yeah. Well, I, I did uh, talk about the advice that I got when I, when I got married about always prioritizing your family. You know, I've been, uh, as a CEO, I have had offices of, you know, 200 square feet. Uh, when I had a treadmill and a, an elliptical <laughs> to exercise, and very comfortable, very actually luxurious. And uh, on Christmas, and I would receive 200 gifts from people who did business with our company. It was a very large company. The day I retired, the next Christmas, I, I did not receive one gift related to my professional life, not even a, a Christmas card. And a lot of people have a hard time making that transition when they fool themselves thinking that what they find in their careers is going to perpetuate itself. But everything ends. I'm no longer a CEO. My office is uh, my home office, and it's much smaller than 200 square feet. 2,000, actually. Sorry. Oh, wow. 200 meters, yeah. 
I mean, huge. Uh, but, you know, I never put those things first, so I didn't see a difference in what was important to me during those years, and now it's the same thing. So the transition is easier. You have to focus on things that are going to last. Yeah. Your principles, your character, your family. And by the way, which is the thing that brings the most joy in your life, is at least in my life, is family life. Being around your kids, where all of our, all of them are our friends, the grandkids that we adore. Uh, those things are meant to be eternal, and so they should be prioritized. Yeah, and uh, the final principle on your list here is a uh, search of excellence. Uh, right. how, how did that happen in, in your professional life? Well, uh, I think the the grading system at the Harvard Business School has a, a, a reason for being. Uh, in every class, you know, at, at my time there were three grades. You could get a one, a two, or a three in any class. One was reserved for the top 10%, one, uh, three reserved for the bottom 30% and 80 was for the rest, which is uh, pretty much what happens in, in business life as well. Uh, the brands, the companies that lead the way, they, they have more value. They can price higher. They make more profits, but, but they are excellent at what they do. Uh, so, and it's the same in professional life. If you start the work to work in a major corporation, for instance, uh, there are, depending on the size, hundreds of managers at a given level. And there is one CEO and maybe eight C-somethings. And usually, for the most part, those who get there they get there because they deserve it, because they did better than the others. And that's something that you have to search in everything you do in your life. You need to strive to be the best parent you can be, the best husband that you can be, the best executive that you can be. Uh, and that takes learning, humility, to learn with your mistakes, to want to learn more, to do more, and to do better. Never be satisfied with where you are. You need to strive to to be better. Uh, you need to be, you know, you need to uh, stand out. There is no space, no high bonuses, no recognition for mediocrity. And mm -hmm. Mediocrity is being average, being the average guy. It's not good enough. Uh, never. You don't want to be a mediocre dad, a mediocre husband, a mediocre executive. You want to be on top. And to be on top, it takes effort, work, extra mile. 
seeking to be excellent at what you do. I'll give you a, a simple example. I got into Procter & Gamble and I told you how fast they grew. They offered a training program for the first two years. I took every single course that they offered twice because I wanted to learn more than the others. I, you know, people that would ask me, why are you doing this? You already took this course. I said, yeah, probably, you know, I missed something the first time, so I'm going to do it again. And these were extra hours. These were after work hours. And guess what? I've learned more than most people. Uh, and, and I've mastered those uh, skills better than, than the average. So I think this should also be a lifestyle I need to to look to have, to strive for, is to search to be excellent in everything you do. Oh, I love that. And well, this has been uh, so so enlightening and inspiring. Uh, any other principle or concept that that uh, that we didn't hit on that you want to make sure we cover before we wrap up? No, I, I think I've I've covered okay. what's more cool. It's been more important to me. But thanks for awesome. Asking. And uh, last question I have for you is: uh, if you were in a room full of uh, MBA students or, or brand new professionals, you know, alumni out of, out of MBA school, what, what advice would you give to them? What encouragement would you leave them with? I would tell them that they have more potential to excel than they may be aware of. That if they put what's more important ahead of them and in their lives, you know, working hard, uh, walking the extra mile, trying to be excellent in what they do, trying to, to have a balanced life, everything else will come for free, meaning it comes as a consequence. You, you don't have to advocate. I never asked for a salary increase for a promotion, but frankly, I got surprised. My first salary increase after I became a manager with PNG was 30%. And I, and I went to, to, my, to my boss and said, is this right? And he said, well, it's less than I would like to give you, but it's the <laughs> most of the company allows. And after five years, I didn't balance my checkbook anymore. I had a wonderful lifestyle. I was an expatriate. The company was paying for everything, you know, housing, school, everything. I saved 80% of what what I was making five years after I started, but I never had to advocate for this, a promotion, a salary increase, a bonus. You know, after my first year as a CEO, you know, I did so well in that first year that the board doubled my base salary, double. Wow. So do what is right, you know, do uh, things honestly, work hard, Strive to be the best that you can be and better than your peers. And everything else will come as a, as a consequence. Thank you for listening to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about our guest and visit latterdaysaintmba.com to find details about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society. 